The following audio is from the Grove Church Snohomish campus. For more information about our church or to listen to previous sermons, check out our website at grove.church. My name's Evan. Uh, Andrew kind of introduced me already, but yeah, I'm the creative director here um, at the Grove Church. And, and I really do um, enjoy getting to be able to come over to Snohomish. Um, sometimes it's uh, coming over to do video. So like, I was with you guys um, at the carnival and getting to capture that moment and what it all looked like. Um, sometimes it's speaking, uh, like I've done in the past. And sometimes like today, it's both where I get to speak. And then afterwards, I'm going to film you guys uh, stuff in the truck full of food. So it's going to be rad. It's going to be a great day. Um, and, and honestly, I, I do think it's just a really special thing to be able to come to Snohomish and, and to see what you guys um, are able to do in your community and what God is doing through you in the community. And it's just, a, it's just an incredible thing. And it's a different thing, obviously, um, between Marysville and Snohomish. There's just different things that um, the churches have to do. But I love being able to come um, and just help set up and just see the team of people that are here really early in the morning. And honestly, they're just passionate about church getting to happen. It's, it's just a great thing, and I, I love being able to be here. I um, mean, today, we're going to wrap up our series, our series, not our series, called Spiritual Mathematics. Um, and I'll be completely honest, when I first uh, was told the idea for what the series was going to be, I was really skeptical, because if, if you know me at all, um, you probably know that I am a noted hater of math. Um, and it's, it's, why are you laughing? So that's just, that was so rude. Um, <laughs> No, so um, I'm, I'm the guy who, when I first went to college, um, I took all of my placement tests, and I did really well in the reading and the writing, um, and then the teacher or the, the administrator who was giving me the test double-checked my math score because she thought it was wrong, um, but I placed in like the 16th percentile, so it was awesome. I had to take four uh, math classes just to get the privilege of being able to take a college-level math class, but eventually I did pass it and get my degree, um, so don't ever ask me for help with math or anything related to it. Uh, but I, I was really skeptical about the series, but I think as I've been able to listen to the messages and move forward, um, it's been really powerful because really the heart behind the series is to take spiritual truths that we find all throughout Scripture and to kind of distill them down into easily digestible um, formulas or equations or whatever you, whatever you want to call them, right? And it's been really cool and powerful to see the different, um, the different messages that have happened and really just the different... Um, the different truths that have been able to be shared. I think uh, there was a message on forgiveness two weeks ago that was really convicting for me, but also I think just really powerful for the entire church to hear. And I don't want to give away uh, today's equation before we start, because, you know, that's, it's no fun to have get the ending spoiled for you. Um, but I'm really excited about getting to share this today and getting to, uh, getting to wrap up the series. So I'm going to pray, and then we're just going to jump right in. Father, I thank you so much for allowing us to gather here today and to worship you and learn more about you and to just be in community with other Christians and other believers. I pray that today that um, as I speak that they would be your words and not my words. I pray that I wouldn't be motivated by anything else than bringing you glory. And I pray for everyone in here that we would be able to uh, listen to what you have to say and just be able to learn more about your incredible grace, your incredible truth, and, and, and the beauty of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. One of, one of the lasting arguments that Jesus Christ is who he said he is, 
is the legacy of the apostles. And if you haven't followed church history at all, what's really interesting is that after the death and resurrection of Jesus, uh, the 12 apostles, you know, take out Judas, Adam, Matthias, because we don't talk about Judas. Um, but the other 12 were super awesome. And then there's other apostles like Paul and then James, Jesus' brother. And what they all have in common is that they were all given opportunities at different points to recant um, that Jesus Christ was God. And they all ended up dying for that truth, except for John, but he was tortured. So still, like, you know, not a great deal. And they, they all had the opportunity to walk away whenever they, whenever they could, and, and yet they, they didn't. And I think it's really interesting because these are, these are not just people who were told this is who Jesus is. Because, you know, even in modern days, people die for things um, that may be false all, the, all of the time. But that's not the case with these people. These are people who intimately knew Jesus. They were with him in the case of the apostles for three years doing ministry with him day in and day out. In the case of James, his brother, he literally grew up with Jesus and was willing up to the very end of his life to claim that his own brother was God, which is just an incredible thing. Because if I ever stood up here and claimed to be God, the very first person who would be able to tell you that that's not the case is my brother. He would fly out from California and immediately denounce me for whatever I was trying to say. And what, what I think is so interesting about it is that all of these men, all of these women, and it's not just the apostles and, and Paul and James, but really thousands of Christians um, all throughout the history of the early church were given this choice, and yet they did not choose to recant that Jesus is who he said he was. And in 2 Timothy, we get this really interesting kind of look into the mindset of someone who is, who is going through this very, this very moment. Um, Paul is the one who writes this letter. He's writing it to Timothy. It's the second letter that Paul writes to Timothy that we have. And it's, it's one of the last letters that Paul writes. So it's dated to the late 60s. Um, we don't know which one exactly is the last one, but there's a series of letters that Paul writes where he clearly understands um, that he's about to die. And so he writes a few people. He writes a few churches, and those are kind of the final letters of Paul. And in 2 Timothy at the very end in, in chapter 4, He's writing to one of his closest friends, and, and Timothy is, is really someone who Paul views like a son, and, and Timothy views him as a father. They have a, a really cool relationship um, where Paul has kind of mentored him. He's brought him up. Timothy's now pastoring on his own um, somewhere else, and Paul obviously has a really deep affection for Timothy. And so the final letter um, is really, it kind of just reads as like the last words of a father. He's giving him these really encouraging things. Then he ends it um, with, with this statement. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering in the time of my departure has come. So again, Paul is understanding that it's, it's coming to an end now. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but, to also, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. And so Paul is writing to Timothy, and again, he knows the fate that is coming with him. And it's not just simply like he knows he's going to die, but the Romans were exceptionally cruel. Um, you can read about like, you know, the crucifixion, the things that they did, um, but also just any other things. Like even if you just watch kind of like old Roman movies about the Colosseum, like that stuff's not really made up. Like it's, they were an exceptionally cruel people, and Paul knows that that's coming for him. And, and yet, when he's writing to Timothy, and then when he writes to Titus and some of the other people he writes to, he is completely at peace. And in fact, the early Christians were known for this. Um, Pastor Ryan in the, in the Marysville campus, he spoke a few weeks ago, and he shared um, 
a quote from a Roman doctor who was, uh, I think in the second century he was writing, and he was talking about how um, exceptional it was that when Christians were being put to death, they seemed to actually like not be afraid of what was happening. And when most other prisoners were being put to death, they would be you know, begging for their lives, they'd be doing all these different things, but the Christians seemed to be essentially not afraid of, of what was going down. It was, it was notable enough for him to actually like write, he was writing letters to Caesar, giving, uh, giving him basically a rundown of what was going on, and he mentions that. And the, and the question for us today, I suppose, would be how on earth was the early church able to live like that? How on earth were they able to live without, without fear of everything else that was going on? Because I think for us today, um, as Christians, you know, we're not afraid necessarily of really anything that's coming. Um, there's certainly groups that don't really like us, and, but we're not really afraid that someone's going to come in here and shut us down or whatever it may be. But in the early church, that was a constant reality. Jesus says it this way in one of his parables that I think is really poignant for us today. In Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 46, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. And I think what, what Scott said um, during his, during his um, speaking portion in worship was the idea that you always put yourself into the story. And I think one of the great mistakes that we make when we read the Bible is that we don't actually put ourselves into the situations that the Bible is telling us about. And so what Jesus is saying here is that imagine, if you will, that someone is working a field and then they find in the field something so incredibly valuable that they immediately cover it up. But they don't just cover it up and then buy the field. It says that if they didn't even have the money to buy the field, they would sell everything that they owned just to get that one thing because of its incredible value. And I, I think we can read through, oh, he sold everything, that's nice, then we kind of just move through. Like, no, he's saying, if, if this guy's working a field, we can assume that this has been his job, right? For his life, for his adult life, he's been working and cultivating his life. And so he's built his house. He's gotten all of the different things um, that are inside of it. He has everything that he's worked for his entire life. And yet, in one moment, he finds something that is so valuable that the rest, the earlier parts of his life, everything he's worked for, it no longer matters. He's willing to give it all away just so that he can possess this one thing. Or the, or the merchant idea where it says, you know, he, he finds this one pearl. And so everything else that he's been grabbing, this is how he's going to make money, right? He buys things and then he sells them. He's willing to give up all the rest of that because he found one thing that is more valuable than everything else that he possesses. It's, it's really an incredible statement. And even more incredible is the fact that Jesus describes it. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy his field. This isn't a reluctant, a reluctant thing. He's not saying, like, I know I need to get it, and then he goes and he sells everything, and he's sad about it, and then he, he buys the field. It's saying he literally runs home, immediately sells everything he has, and then he goes so that he can purchase this one thing. What Jesus is saying is that the gospel is so valuable doesn't matter what we have to give up in order to obtain it. Or in other words, our salvation is so valuable that everything else in life doesn't matter as much as that one thing.
And I mean everything, right? Like whatever's coming to your head right now, everything else in life, it doesn't matter as much as, as that. And I, I wonder how often do we truly sit and think about everything that God has done for us? Because I think there's a disconnect between the way um, that we do Christianity and the way that we do church and then, and then who those people, what those people in those stories do. Do we truly treat um, what Jesus has done as the most valuable thing in our lives? Do we, do we ever just sit and, and meditate on the idea that the, the creator God of the universe loves us so much that he came and lived the, the perfect sinless life that we could never live, that he died and, and took the punishment that we deserved because of our sin and that because of that death and resurrection, we can now have a relationship with him, not just, not just here now, although that's true, but also on the other side of eternity as well, that we can have eternal life because of what God has done? Do we ever actually just sit and truly let that sink in? I think for so many of us, the the temptation with with our faith or the temptation with Christianity is just to kind of like, you know, it's a couple rules. I need to lie less or whatever it is. And then, you know, we try and be a good person. Then we leave and, you know, do whatever during the week. But do we ever actually um, think about the eternal implications of of what Jesus is saying? When we think about our faith, is it, is it something that we would be willing to give up, give up everything because of what Jesus has done? And here's where I think it's interesting. Um, the early church believed it. And so, and so when you see these stories of you know, early Christians just in the incredible persecution that they face. It's really unprecedented that this, this religion um, arises in ancient Israel, which is not a powerhouse by any means in, in, the, in the world at that time. Um, and it's relentlessly oppressed, both by the people of Israel and then by the rest of the Roman Empire. Everyone hates Christians. Um, and yet in 300 years, it takes over the world, essentially. It, it doesn't happen. The only other times that it happens are like conquerors who go through and kill everyone and then like, oh, hey, we're all this religion now, which is you know, a way of doing it, I suppose. Um, but Christianity spreads in spite of the fact that people are trying to keep it down. And the reason it spreads is because the people who were sharing the faith, the people who were talking about what was happening truly believed that Jesus was who he said he was and they were willing to die for it. It, it, it changed the way that they lived. And it should change the way that we live as well. And even when you look at the apostles, um, when Jesus calls his apostles, um, Peter, we don't, I guess we don't really talk about all this all that much, but Peter is, by all accounts, a successful fisherman, right? He's built up his business. He has employees because there's people who are working um, out with him. And Jesus says, come and follow me. And Peter just, he, he drops the boat and he just goes because he realizes that there's, there's something now that is, that is more valuable than everything else. And I, th- I think about for, for us today, how, how often do we chase things that at the end of the day don't matter? How often, I can think in my mind right now, like how often do I just chase things that at the end of the day, um, they, they don't really matter in, in light of eternity. Like on our deathbed, none of us are gonna be like, I wish I would have stayed at the office for that one time and gotten overtime and my boss would have liked me more. That would have been great. Or you know, fill in the blank with whatever, whatever it may be. I, th- I think in my life of um, 
There's just things that we all chase after that don't matter, or as my grandma would say, that don't matter a hill of beans, which to this day I don't understand what that expression is supposed to mean, but sure, beans, hills. We can chase relationships, which aren't, which aren't bad, some certainly are, but relationships at the very least are probably neutral, sometimes they're good, but when we, uh, when we put them into the ultimate category, so in other words, we're pursuing um, relationships more than we're pursuing God himself we're not treating the gospel like it's the thing that matters most. We can chase um, career success. We can change, chase hobbies. You know, whatever it is, fill in the blank. What are the things that we are chasing that at the, at the end of the day, or I guess in light of eternity, they simply don't matter as much as our relationship with Christ? We think those things will fulfill us, and, and, and really there's only one thing that can do that. To get, back to, to get back to Paul for a second, in the second letter he writes to the Corinthians, this is about 10 years before um, he wrote to Timothy, he, he kind of opens up a little bit. And it's interesting for Paul because um, most of the letters that he writes to, to churches, not necessarily to people, but to churches, um, they're not really about him as much. He's kind of like presenting the gospel, like here's what we believe, here's who Jesus is, which is great. Um, but in, in 2 Corinthians, he opens up to the church a little bit, and he says this in chapter 12, uh, verses 7 through 10. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And so we don't know what this thing is, but there's, there's something that's tormenting Paul. And Paul is opening up and he's saying for multiple times, I've pleaded with God, God, please take this away from me. And, and God's reply to Paul is, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. I, I, I like to nerd out on words a little bit, and so when I was um, preparing for this message, I was, I was curious, you know, what this word sufficient, like what is it actually meaning? Because remember, um, you know, this letter wasn't originally written in English, it's translated for us, it's written in Greek, and so when I was looking at the word, um, it's the word archaeo, not that you need to know that, but, you know, fun fact. Um, but it's translated uh, most often as meaning uh, sufficient or, or satisfying, or kind of the two translations that you see pop up with that word most often. But what I thought was interesting when I was looking at it is, is it carries um, this idea of being possessed by something that is stronger than whatever is outside, which sounds weird, but I'm not talking about people. So think of it this way. Um, in the ancient mind, um, the city is being held by, by some kind of force that is stronger than whatever the force is outside, right? Like, so that's kind of what the word is talking about. When it says sufficient, um, it's not meaning just barely enough. What it means, actually, is that it's more than enough. And when we say the word sufficient, when we say the word satisfying, um, that's kind of the vibe that we get today in English, right? Like if, if I asked you afterwards, like, hey, did you like my message? And you're like, it was satisfying. Um, I wouldn't take that as a compliment. I would just be like, oh, thanks, man. And then, you know, whatever it might be. Um, but, the, you know, we don't use that word 
to mean what it actually truly means. We just use it to mean like barely enough. Like it wasn't bad, it wasn't good, it was just passable. Or if you want to take it in the midst of food, we can make it to mean like, well, I ate um, and now I'm not going to die, so sweet, but I'm still really hungry. Um, that's kind of what we can say. But what God is saying here is not that my grace is, is just enough for you to be able to kind of live through life. You're still going to have um, these wants or whatever it is, but my grace is going to be enough for you. What God is saying is that it doesn't matter the situation. It doesn't matter what is coming from outside. It doesn't matter whatever that thing is in your head right now, whatever disappointments you face, whatever is coming. God is saying, my grace, Paul, is all that you need. And God says that to us today. My grace is sufficient for you. And I, I, I love that Paul doesn't actually explain what the thorn is, right? Whatever that thing that's tormenting him. And if you read theologians, they'll, um, I've read everything from like, it's actually like some kind of like a demonic presence that was um, tormenting Paul, or maybe it's like a disease of some kind, but it, it's left vague. And, and I, I think, this is just my own opinion, so don't, don't quote me on this, but I, I think that it's left blank so that we can fill in the blank with whatever it is that comes to our head. Because I'm sure when I read, three times I plead with the Lord about this that it should leave me, I'm sure, I'm sure things come to our head right now. Situations come to our head, whatever it may be. And I, I think it's a really beautiful reminder that when we hit moments where we, we placed our hope in something and it didn't come through or, or life just feels like it's never going to get better, what, whatever it may be, God can lovingly look at us and say, my, my grace is sufficient for you. I was listening to um, a pastor speak um, this is a few years ago now. It was probably like five or six years ago. Um, but he, the pastor had cancer, and he was talking about kind of just his walk and what he was going through. And he was saying at one of his, um, I, I think it was a support group of some kind, he met a, he met a young man who, um, and I, I just want to share his story because I think it's incredibly powerful. So this young man was in his 30s, um, and he had grown up in church, but he said that he, he never really took his faith very seriously. Like it was just kind of something that he did, but he never really... Um, yeah, I guess he, ne he never really seriously thought about, like, what, what is, who is Jesus? Like, what is all this happening? It's just kind of a cultural thing that he did. And so he pursued his career. He was going, um, he was going really far, really fast. And then uh, in his early 30s, he found out that he had uh, leukemia. And he said that what happened in that moment is all of a sudden, because you're just faced with your own mortality, right? Like, all of a sudden, um, when something like that happens, you're not thinking about, the far future, you're thinking about the, the right here and now. And, and, and what happened was, is he realized how much he needed to rely on, on God. And he said that in the, in the year that he um, was walking through this, he, he felt closer to God than he had ever felt before. And he felt like for the first time, he, he truly was, was a Christian, that he truly was um, saved by Jesus. And, and what he said was, and I think this is the incredible part of his story, he said that um, allowing me to get cancer is probably the most loving thing that God ever did in my life. And, and that's, that sounds just like a crazy thing, but what he's walking through there, what he's, what he's learning, is that there's truth behind those parables. That even though, you know, metaphorically, he had to sell everything he had, he, he got something that was more valuable than all of it. He realized that he had gained Jesus and it didn't matter what he had to give up for that to happen. 
Um, and so our equation today is um, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And, and we could have easily written it as Jesus equals everything, which I think, you know, it, it communicates essentially the same truth, but the idea behind it is that um, I think so often we, we try to add things. So Jesus plus um, that job that I really want equals everything, or Jesus plus um, this relationship or whatever it may be uh, equals everything, or even things as simple as, you know, Jesus plus um, my health equals everything. Whatever it may be, whatever, you know, fill in the blank with whatever often we add to. But it, and the reality is, Jesus is everything. Like, my grace is sufficient for you is what God says to Paul. Also, disclaimer, this is the title of a book that's really good. So I didn't make it up myself. So I just felt like my conscience, I needed to tell you that, you know, just in case. Um, there's, a, there's another quote that's been attributed to a lot of people that I think is really good. Um, it, it speaks well into this. It says, I didn't realize Jesus was all I needed until he was all I had. I mean, there's a, there's a song I love. It's an older hymn that kind of says it a different way, but I wanted to read that. Um, it's not on the screen. I just have it kind of in my notes. But it says, um, take the world, but give me Jesus. All its joys are but a name, but his love abideth ever through eternal years the same. Take the world, but give me Jesus, and his cross my trust will be, till with clearer, brighter vision, face to face, my Lord I see. And the the idea behind it is simply, take it all. And I'm not saying, you know, don't have dreams or whatever it is, because I guess it can kind of come across as like, you know, just forget about everything else in life. Like, no, no, pursue those things. Do do good things. Do great things. Um, But never let them take the place of of Christ in our lives. When when, um, the, the man goes into the field and sells everything that he has, it wasn't bad that he had possessions. He had worked for those things. He had the house. He had, you know, whatever else it may be. Um, it wasn't that those possessions were bad and he needed to get rid of them. It was that he realized that there was something that was more valuable than, than everything else. And, and for us today, I would encourage us, and my hope for us today really is that we would realize that there is something more valuable than anything else. There's something that anchors our lives. There's something that anchors our faith. That even in, in the midst of the, the hardest trials that we go through, in the midst of the most difficult things, we can remember that there's a God who loves us and that in, the, in light of eternity, this struggle, whatever, whatever is happening, it's, it's, a, it's a blip. And we get so focused on this, this little portion of time where we're here and we don't think about Everything. I kind of I wrote down a conclusion uh, just because I like writing things down sometimes. But it says, uh, my hope for all of us today is that we can truly get to the point where in our hearts we believe that Jesus is all we need. How often in our lives do we think we need more? Do we chase things thinking, if I just got that, then I'd finally be fulfilled, only to get there and realize that it doesn't actually fix anything? To finally accomplish that thing and still feel empty inside. The truth of the gospel is this, the finished work of Jesus is all that we need. Everything else is gravy. We can be rich and that's nice, but even if we're poor, we still have Jesus and that's enough. 
We can be healthy or we can be dying. But if we have Jesus, then that's enough. No matter what life may bring, his grace is sufficient. His grace is all that we need. I'm going to pray. Father, I thank you so much for just who you are and the incredible works that you have done. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for the incredible sacrifice that you have made so that we can have relationship with you. And I pray that that would never be something that we take lightly. I pray that it would never be something that we take for granted. But I pray that we would truly know, that we would truly realize that you are worth so much more than everything else. I pray that you would be the ultimate things in our lives, that our salvation, that your salvation for us would constantly bring us joy, that it would constantly bring us peace even in the midst of the darkest uh, times that we go through. And I pray that for every single one of us in here, me included, that you would just continually remind us of how much you love us, that you'd remind us of your grace, and that you'd remind us that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Snohomish Sermon Podcast. If you want to keep up with us, like us on Facebook, Instagram, or visit our website at grove.church.